0: Thank you very much, Greg. What a what a joy it is to step into the room with a whole host of folks, uh, only a few of whom I know, and to join together in unity and lifting Jesus' name high. Just uh, I, I can tell God is here and at work uh, among you. Before Trevor uh, preaches, I just want to take a, a moment to offer a few words of encouragement and and blessing. Uh, you, you may remember I was scheduled to preach here, and I think it was late November. And uh, woke up Saturday morning sick as a dog. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll drive down. I'll haul my side of the car. I'll be fine. Took a COVID test. And, oh, I better stay home. So I called Greg at, like, noon. And anyway, somebody filled in. Grateful, but maybe that was the uh, the providence of God. Uh, Trevor started as our executive director just a number of weeks ago. And so we rescheduled the state back in, I don't know, early December. And I said, hey, like, this is a great chance for you to get to know uh, Trevor. So I'm thankful for how that... Uh, that took shape and the opportunity for you to, to hear from Trevor. We're really excited to have him as our leader, you know, roughly uh, 25 churches across Ontario. And it is a joy to see and hear how God's at work in every center and then to facilitate those uh, points of encouragement, support, equipping, relationship, and then being on mission together. And, and so just uh, before I pass the mic to Trevor, I just want to say how grateful I am To see how God has been guiding you and caring for you, providing for you during this time of transition. Also, maybe another unusual point, I happened to be in the room. I was just coming to visit, but was in the room when Chris Walker announced his resignation to your Board of Elders last summer. Uh, There was a bit of emotion in that room. (laughs) I could tell that Chris, and I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know Chris, that he's been a wonderful shepherd of you as a community, and all of the uncertainty of like, oh my goodness, what's next? And as I've heard from a number of folks, maybe particularly Susan, that God was really uh, poured himself out among you this past fall with the Holy Spirit weekend. And, and just as I'm you know, hearing from Greg along the way and hearing from Renee, and uh, just really thankful that God has been at work and encouraging you and strengthening you and preparing you for this next step. And the other point that I'm excited about is just in had the opportunity to sit in a 4-1 interview with Wes and uh, with Greg. Yeah, Greg, you were in that conversation. Well, so, Greg and Wes and Matt, and just to kind of hear his heart and hear his story and I'm excited for you. I, th- I think, like, just initial perceptions. Uh, I think that God is bringing you a wonderful pastor, and we're looking forward to coming alongside him, to support him, pray for him, and uh, and cheer him on. And just thrilled to see what God's going to do in this next season. So I just want to offer that word of encouragement and bless you. Uh, transition times are hard for churches, and I don't know what all the dynamics have been, but it looks like you're you know you're you're here, you're smiling, and God's been uh, been present. So we want I want to honor you and honor God for this. This time. And if I may just, just pray a, a prayer of blessing before I pass this off to uh, Trevor. So, God, we together, we give you thanks. You are good. You carry us through times where we don't know what the next step is. And, and we confess those times are hard. We doubt, we worry, all of that. And yet, you are here. And you're just patient. You're merciful. And you've been pouring yourself out. And so, God, we give you thanks. And, Lord, today I pray right now that you would anoint uh, Matt and his family. I pray that in this next month before he steps into his role, that they would have moments of, of deep joy and readiness before they step into the responsibilities and the and the, the weight of shepherding your, your people. I just pray for rest and joy upon them. Would you fill Matt with your Holy Spirit that he would lead out of the strength that you give him, the power of you, Holy Spirit, uh, above and beyond his own own strength. And so I just, I pray, Lord, for just a a coming together in friendship and partnership with their family and this church uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, we honor you, Lord. Pour out your blessing. Make yourself known, and, and as I've already heard pray this morning, for the sake of your name, God, that Leamington would know that you are great, that you are good, that you are present because of the witness of Meadowbrook Church alongside your people and other churches in this community. There is no one like you father son and holy spirit we pray amen amen so yeah pass the mic here to trevor seath he's been a friend of ONMB for a number of years uh well loved and and trusted by our pastors and we're just excited to introduce him to our churches and to ask god what is this next uh season of partnership and mission for the ontario conference of mb churches so I'm, i'm actually really thrilled that we have this chance to introduce you to uh our new director so thank you
1: I didn't realize that I'm the second reason why you haven't been able to hear a message from Ryan Yancey. That's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's like a plot or something that someone's trying to prevent uh, Ryan from sharing a good word with you. But uh, thank you, Ryan, first of all, for uh, letting me um, step in here and, and uh, share with you. I want to share a message with you of good news in hard times. And as I was thinking about this uh, message, Um, I thought, you know, this is maybe a bit of a strange thing for someone in my position with you to share as a first message. You might think that if uh, someone comes in, I mean, this is the beginning of week five for me or something in in this role with uh, ONMB. And uh, you'd think, you know, a new executive director, I might not come and talk about hard times. Maybe I want to talk about Bright and exciting things that are coming in the future, or, or something a little bit more visionary, a little bit more positive, a little bit more mission oriented. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the necessity for us to have a sense of God's good news in hard times and how Jesus transforms our suffering. So, um, it's important for me, it's important for you to know that we have good news in the midst of hard times. Uh, We're still suffering in Canada, have you noticed? Uh, Look at these statistics in 2022, more than five million people in Canada met the diagnostic criteria for a mood, anxiety, or substance use disorder, uh, with the prevalence of mood and anxiety disorders increasing substantially over the previous 10 years. I mean, the whole project in Canada, the whole project in the Western world is that if we can get our act together economically and do well and build institutions and structures and safety nets in society, that we can build a world for ourselves that's comfortable, that's safer, where life expectancy is longer, where infant mortality is down, where people are thriving and able to provide for their families and even leave money behind as they're to their children for generations and to a large extent that that whole project of development has gone very very well and we can look at all kinds of ways in which life is better in the world because of the the way in which economic development in the west and in other parts of the world even has made a real substantial meaningful positive difference in people's lives and yet And yet, here we are in Canada, and the actual incidence of suffering, at least in this one area of mental health, is increasing. And it seems as though it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole that when you hit suffering in one area and you say, you know, homelessness is not okay, we have to make sure that people have safe housing, or we have to deal with this issue, that it crops up in another form, And here we are in a world that, in many ways, is bubble-wrapped in terms of physical security and uh, many other advantages that we enjoy, and yet, we're still suffering. And this is just one little slice of suffering, and you could think right now, and we could brainstorm together about all the myriad ways in which there's a sense within Canadian society That suffering is actually increasing, that there's an increasing sense of insecurity about the future, that we feel more divided, we feel less connected sometimes uh, with our neighbors over all kinds of issues. And so as there has been progress and we don't want to fail to thank God for all the ways in which we live in a wonderful and blessed society, it is not difficult to find suffering in the world, and suffering affecting the church. We've come here together, and many of us are carrying difficult, painful, discouraging, and sometimes chronic issues in our lives, and so we need a message of good news for ourselves in hard times. The illusion that Church should be a place where everybody has everything together and it's not okay to talk about the difficult things in our lives. Needs to be something that we leave in the past and we need to be a church where we can be honest about the difficulties and heartaches and struggles that we're dealing with. So we need, as believers, as people who have trusted Christ, we need a message of good news in hard times for us and... As you look out into your city, as you look out into the world, as you get to know your neighbors and co-workers or think about family members who don't know Jesus yet, we need to be able to bring a message of good news because they're suffering. And we need to be able to speak to the suffering of our society in a way that brings hope. But here's the thing. What is that message? What is the good news in hard times? Well, one possible story that perhaps you've heard is something that is often called the prosperity gospel. The the message that we bring uh, sometimes as people who've trusted in Christ is, if you are suffering, we know the way that is ironclad and certain and sure that if you just pray the right way, and if you just believe the right way, and if you just persevere, that all of this can be erased. And God's desire is that suffering would be eradicated from the lives of his children. And so come onto the safe island of peace and joy and contentment and comfort, and Jesus will set everything right. And as we Pay attention to that message and we notice that certain people are deeply disappointed as illnesses are not healed, as broken relationships are not restored, as economic difficulties persist, as families struggle. We begin to question, well, is is that really what the Bible says? Is, Is the Bible's message that if you just trust Jesus enough, everything will go well in your life? And we say, well, that, that can't be true. That, that's not it. That's not the message that we can offer with integrity to one another and to a hurting world. And so if it's not the prosperity gospel, if it's not the health and wealth gospel, and let me present to you the suggestion that maybe what we need is the gospel gospel. Maybe we need to actually tell the truth to people about what the Bible actually says And what is the good news in hard times? We need to be clear on that for our sake or we're going to struggle in our relationship with God, in our confidence in in Jesus, if we have a misunderstanding and we need to have clarity so that we can share a message with others. Here's a suggestion. I've begun to think a lot about the possibility that hurt is the primary mission field for the church in Canada in the years ahead. As you think about people who are struggling with addiction, as you think about people who are struggling over the brokenness in their past, as you think about people who are struggling with the mental disorders that we've referred to or the anxiety struggles. These this is our mission field. If you begin to think about people who are hurting, they are the ones Jesus said I haven't come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. They need to hear this good news. And I think the primary way in which Meadowbrook and other churches across Canada can begin to engage well in our society and communities is to say, where are people hurting? Let's go there. And so let's be clear about the message that we want to share as we do. So I want to talk first of all about what's the clarity of the message for us And I want to talk about this, the the importance of understanding how Jesus' power relates to our suffering, because there's such good news for us to hear in this uh, truth. And really want to look with you at uh, the Apostle Paul, and particularly Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth, because Paul had a trouble, talks about in 2 Corinthians how they compared his ministry to the ministry of super apostles. So you can look up him in 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about super apostles. Now, Paul's tongue is firmly in his cheek when he refers to them this way. He's, you know, it's air quotes, super apostles. He doesn't see them as better than him, but he knows that there are those in this church which he planted who actually prefer the ministry of others who are better speakers than he is, who are more impressive than he is. There's actually evidence in the, in the letter, the second letter that Paul sends to the Corinthians, that they prefer the ministry of these others because the other leaders charge them for their services. And they sort of think, well, Paul gives away his ministry for free. He makes his money making tents. That can't be as valuable as the ministry of these others who are charging us for their uh, services. Interesting, isn't it? how their their mentality was warped in that way. But Paul wants to defend his ministry as an apostle to this group of believers in Corinth uh, who were formed significantly through his church planting ministry. And it's fascinating how he goes about doing it and how important suffering is. He's working with a principle, or so how important suffering is in his defense of his credentials as an apostle. He's working with a principle that you can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says this in verse 28. I don't have a slide for this verse, but there will be slides for the longer passages. You're probably familiar with this. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, this is one of the, the passages that sort of, jumps off the page. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. He says this, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So he lays this principle out that you actually don't have to be impressive You don't have to have a stellar life. You don't have to have outstanding gifts. In fact, God prefers to work through those who, in Paul's words, are not, who are kind of nothing, nothing special. And although this is different from saying that God can work with us as we suffer, suffering is one of those things that puts us in that position of sort of not being all that impressive, right? If you're going through a hard time, you're not an especially poster-worthy kind of individual. People like to hear the stories of those who are succeeding. But Paul says at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, God wants to work through the lives of unimpressive people. And he means that generally, but it certainly includes that as you are suffering, God wants to work in and through your life. This comes through very clearly as Paul continues in chapter 2. Of 1 Corinthians, where he says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then I've highlighted here, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. He's saying two distinct things here. First of all, he's saying, I didn't try to impress you with my preaching ability. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which I think we're meant to understand, I preached a simple message to you about Jesus, I didn't try to add on other things and adorn it or anything like that. I preached to you a simple message about Jesus and his death, his resurrection, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. And that was a choice. That was something that he decided to do. He didn't try to have a fancy speaking uh, relationship with these people in Corinth. But there's another part of what he's saying, what I've highlighted here, This is an unchosen part. This wasn't a strategic decision. He says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. There's nothing about that that was strategic. He didn't choose that. Why was Paul feeling weak? Why was he fearful? Why was he trembling as he came to the people in Corinth? It's because he'd been suffering a lot. Paul came to Corinth after being in a series of other cities on this missionary journey. He's traveling now on his second missionary journey with Silas as his sort of uh, side uh, servant. And if you back up far enough into Acts chapter 16, just to pick up the story, remember that uh, the whole story of Paul's ministry is told in the book of Acts. And so when you're reading a letter like Corinthians, you can kind of go back into the book of Acts and see there, like, so what's going on around Paul's relationship with that particular group of people? And so you back up far enough into Acts chapter 16, and you're in Philippi. And in Philippi, uh, Paul delivered a a young girl from a demonic uh, possession or oppression, and that got him in a heap of trouble. He was beaten He was jailed and put in stocks along with Silas, and then ultimately he was escorted out of the city. There was no longer welcome for Paul and Silas in Philippi. They went from there into Thessalonica, where a rioting mob attacks the home of a man named Jason, who kindly had welcomed Paul and Silas into his home, and the believers in Thessalonica say, Paul... You got to get out of town. It's not safe for you here. And so we're told in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, that they had to flee the city of Thessalonica at night just to preserve their lives. The people there were so afraid. They go from there into Berea, where crowds are agitated ultimately by Jewish opponents to Paul's message. And again, Acts chapter 17, verse 14, he flees that city. Philippi, jailed, beaten, put in stocks escorted out of the city. Thessalonica flees the city at night. Berea flees the city again, comes to Athens. In Athens, Paul makes this great effort to connect with the people, and there is some result, but we're also told that people mock him as he tries so hard to speak the gospel in a way that they can understand according to their culture, and much good can be said about how well Paul speaks to the people of Athens in a way that they can understand, and yet Luke tells us some of them are mocking him over what his message is. And then he comes to Corinth, and as is his routine, he goes into the synagogue. But he gets kicked out of the synagogue, and he sets up a teaching ministry in the home of one of the elders of the synagogue, a man named Titius Justice, and that guy's house is right next to the synagogue. Can you imagine? He's preaching the gospel of Jesus right next to the building where they kicked him out because of this message. And we're told in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, that Paul has a vision while he's sleeping. Jesus comes to him in a night vision and says, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you or hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Let me just state the obvious. Jesus would not have to appear to Paul at night to tell him, don't be afraid, no one's going to beat you up in this town, unless that's exactly the thing that Paul was worried about. And who could blame him? Run out of multiple towns, arrested, riots being stirred up against him. And he, by the time he comes to Corinth, he is suffering. And the reason why he's weak and fearful and trembling is because of the suffering that he has endured. This is more than a glitch, though, in Paul's situation. This is more than just like I had a bad run in some towns. Things didn't go well for me for a while. And yeah, for a while there I was kind of afraid because there was a lot of pushback. This was the calling that God had placed on Paul's life. Look at how he, t- he speaks here in chapter 4, you're probably familiar with this, but I've highlighted these and we'll go through them in a minute, but I want to read the whole passage here. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13. Just if you're wondering, CSB is Christian Standard Bible. I've kind of gotten into a habit of using this one. It's a lot like the NIV, but if you, it is the Bible. In case you don't know <laughs> CSB, it's like a little unfamiliar to me too, but I'm enjoying reading uh, scripture in a new translation. But this is what he says. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Now, it's one thing to say, this is my circumstance, But notice how Paul starts. He says, I think God has displayed us. He's saying, I believe it's Jesus' purpose that we who are the witnesses to the gospel are in this position. And look at what he says. We're fools for, excuse me, we're fools for Christ. We're weak, we're dishonored. We're hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, laboring with our own hands, which is to say, No one's supporting his ministry financially. We're rival. uh, We're reviled. We're persecuted. We're slandered. I mean, this is not a good uh, help-wanted ad, right? This is not the way that you attract someone to do a job and say, this is what your condition of life is going to be like. My point is, Paul's not just saying, incidentally, I suffered. It just sort of happened. Or even he's not saying, this was something that Satan Uh, orchestrated against me, and God's preference for me would have been to live a comfortable and heralded and celebrated life as an apostle, he's saying, I think it's baked into God's design that as a witness to the gospel, I'm suffering every single day as I share this message. Now, that is not what we would normally say to people about suffering. That's not normally what we would say to each other, is it? But Paul's saying that. How does Paul even know this? Why would he say this? It almost sounds like, uh, is that kind of blaming God for something that's not his fault? I mean, how can you really put this at God's feet that you're suffering? I mean, that doesn't sound right. Paul knows that this is the case because of something that Luke tells about us tells us about in Acts. Again, I don't have a slide for this, but you can look it up in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16 you remember there was a man in the city of Damascus, and that man named Ananias. He's a Christian believer, and Saul has come to town to persecute the church and take people back as prisoners to Jerusalem, and God's encountered him. Jesus has met him outside the city of Damascus, and he's now in the city uh, with believers, but Saul, who we know more as Paul, he's been blinded by this encounter with Jesus, and Ananias is the one who is sent to speak to him, to lay hands on him, to see healing in his life. And he doesn't want to do it. I mean, he's sort of going, Lord, like, do you know who this man is? He's, he's persecuting people. He's kind of our enemy number one for the church. Are you sure you've got this right? And so in that interaction, this is what we read from uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What? Why, if Jesus wants to tell Saul, I've got this ministry for you i want to turn your life around i want to use you for my kingdom purposes to share the good news of the gospel with all the non-jewish people why would jesus tell him from day one and by the way you must suffer in order to accomplish this work i just want to point out this is what the bible is saying about suffering and the christian life the two are linked for paul and that does not fit my preference. That's not what I would like to know. You know, I'd rather hear a story of if I'm really close to Jesus and I get things right, then suffering's going to be eliminated from my life. Let's keep going here um, and look at another uh, passage. Why, I guess, is the question that I want to answer by looking at this passage. Why would. Why would God do it this way? Why is suffering inextricably linked to Paul's witness for the gospel? Wouldn't it have been better? Wouldn't it be a more powerful demonstration of the gospel if Paul's life checked all the boxes and everything was going well for him? Isn't it true that many people, even up to today, are drawn to ministries that are basically saying, look at how life how well my life is going, my life is a demonstration that if you just trust God, you can have this too. So why would Jesus say to him that in order to be my chosen instrument to share the message of the gospel with people who've never heard, you are going to have to suffer. So Paul begins to unpack this in his second letter to the Corinthians. This again is famous, uh, Portion of the Bible, uh, 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, we have this treasure in jars of clay, So that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our bodies. What's he saying? This is getting at something that is very uncomfortable for us to hear. Paul's saying that this jar of clay, this weakness, this fragility, even this cracked vessel is necessary so that people can see that the power in our lives is coming from Jesus and not from us. It kind of makes sense intuitively that if someone looks at our lives and says, well, everything is going well for you. Everything is perfect in your life. No, ma- no wonder you believe in God. It looks like he's just doing nothing but pouring out blessings for you. It's kind of like when someone gets up at the Oscars and says, I just want to thank God because I just won this incredible award. But if you're suffering, if you're struggling, if you're honest about your weakness, and yet people can see that there is a vibrancy and a vitality and a peace and a joy and a security and a hope in your life, Despite how you're suffering, it makes sense that now the focus is not just on not so much on how well things are going for me, but now the focus is on Jesus. I want to say a word of encouragement to you this morning. If you are suffering, if you are struggling, if things are not going well in your life, you are better qualified in those circumstances of difficulty to offer a Christ exalting message to the people around you. I would even say that if you're not a good speaker, if you're not particularly articulate, that qualifies you to testify more powerfully to what Jesus can do in someone's life. Don't ever allow Satan and this is a strategy of the enemy, to whisper to you about your weaknesses and say that those are the things that disqualify you from participating more vigorously and passionately and boldly. If people knew what was not great about your life, then that would somehow besmirch the testimony of Jesus. Of course, if you're flagrantly pursuing sin, don't, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm talking about suffering and difficulty and pain in your life actually becomes the vehicle through which the gospel shines more clearly and more brilliantly. I have a friend in Ottawa, Omid uh, is an Iranian and converted from Islam to Christianity. If you know anything about uh, Iran, and I don't know much, but there is an historic Christian community in Iran, And there are Iranian churches that are formed mostly of that people group that has a long history of Christian faith. It's a very different thing when someone is not from that ethnic group and converts to become a believer in Jesus, as Omid did. And many are converting to trust Jesus, and God is at work in powerful ways. You've heard about people having dreams, Jesus appearing to people and rescuing them into his kingdom. In, in, among the Persian people of Iran. And Omid himself, who's now in his 50s, came to faith in Christ and then ultimately became a pastor. He knew of one other pastor, a contemporary of his time there, there in Iran, who had a similar story, converted to Christianity, became a pastor. The Iranian government arrested his friend, and that man was executed as, uh, for accused of being uh, a spy for um, Israel. And then Omid, of course, uh, he had been harassed. There had been all kinds of harassment, arrests, very brief arrests. But at one point, uh, he was arrested and held, largely in solitary confinement, for six months. And during that time, he was taken out, only ever really to be interrogated. And when they were interrogating him, they were accusing him of being a spy. And so he's aware that his friend has been executed with the very same storyline. And as I was meeting Omid for the first time, and he was sharing this story with me, I said to him, so Omid, what was that like? What was it like to be in six months of solitary confinement, the only recreational activity is to be taken out of your cell, to be interrogated by the Iranian government and accused of a, uh, a capital offense against the state? And uh, Omid's this big guy, and he has this very baritone voice, and he said, Oh, it was a wonderful time, Pastor. (laughs) He's saying that he experienced the power of the gospel in a way that he never could have. He said, I was going into that prison thinking, this is going to be very hard. And what he said is that God met him in the midst of that suffering in an unprecedented and unique way that he actually testified, no irony, no joke, that it was a wonderful time. He said, I never was afraid. I wasn't anxious. I wasn't concerned about my wife. I wasn't concerned about our kids. I was just enjoying a relationship with God in solitary confinement in an Iranian prison. Now, I'm not saying that has to always be the case. I'm not saying that you can, you know, go through difficulties and not struggle. Of course you, you can but what an amazing testimony. Some of you are probably familiar with MB Seminary and the president of MB Seminary, Mark Westner. So Mennonite Brethren Seminary is in British Columbia. And the president of the seminary, Mark Westner, was just very recently in Ethiopia. And he wrote this reflecting on that trip in an email that he sent out just around, the, I think, the 12th of February or so. So this is very current. And he says this. It is one thing to read uh, words like uh, prisoner, or fellow prisoner which he's picking up from Paul's letters. It's one thing to read those words in the first century New Testament letters, but it's another thing to talk, dream, pray and have lunch with people for whom that has been an expected and listen, and in a sense welcomed experience. These are Ethiopian believers who have been who've experienced prison under persecution Uh, mostly in the 1980s and 90s within uh, Ethiopia. It's another thing, he says, uh, to have lunch with people for whom this has been an expected and in a sense welcomed experience. He says, Canadian disciples need to learn from our Ethiopian brothers and sisters as much as the Ethiopian brothers and sisters need to learn from us something significant happens when Christians from one part of the globe build relationships with Christians from other parts. That's so true. And one of the key things that, the, that Christians from places like Iran or Ethiopia or all other com- so many countries in the world can testify to is that suffering is not antithetical to a vibrant, fulfilling, joy-filled, hopeful, dynamic, wonderful relationship with God. It's like the, the Canadian church is standing fearful about suffering. This is the terrible pool of, oh, please, Lord, don't ever allow any suffering into my life. And if we tip, and I don't want to trivialize, of course, the suffering that many of us here have gone through. But in general, if we think about the body of Christ, the whole church in Canada, if we dip our toe as a church into suffering, we're we're recoiling and saying, Oh, that, that's terrible. Oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to see our country become a place where the church's suffering begins to increase. That would be terrible. And yet we have the witness through 2,000 years of church history and in our lives contemporarily right now from brothers and sisters who are saying this is not the worst thing that can happen in your life. You can actually come to know Jesus better. You can see a more vibrant witness. Your life can become more prayerful. You can begin to acquire more of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life in the midst of suffering. And so this is why Paul speaks about it as an essential thing. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We carry along the death of Jesus in our bodies. Well, um, of course, the most famous word from Paul about suffering really is in 2 Corinthians 12. And it's interesting because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm listening to a message, my head begins to think about other things. And I might begin to think, if I was listening to this sermon, yeah, but you're talking about a missionary, you're talking about like this, you know, the greatest church planter of the history of the church. I don't know, you know. So, like, my life isn't like that. I'm not out there doing these, you know, am I supposed to suffer too? Like, what does suffering have to have to do? This is suffering that he's enduring, Paul, as a public witness for Christ in a hostile environment. So, what about suffering in our lives like what I started with? What about struggles in our health or in our mental health? What about Suffering in relationships, these kinds of things. Can we say that these kinds of suffering, too, are ways in which God wants to work in our lives? And so it's very helpful that we have this testimony from Paul in Second Corinthians where he's talking about this thorn in his flesh. So he's had an incredible vision of God, and then he says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this I pleaded with the Lord 3 times that it would leave me, but he said, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore I will not I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness. What I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's not just there are ways in which people are called to su- suffer uniquely. And I would not be one who would say, let's pray that hostility for the church just goes through the roof in Canada. I'm not saying that we should be seeking persecution or that we should be trying to encourage it, perhaps by being an especially disagreeable person and then having other people get mad at us and say, oh, well, I'm just suffering for, for Jesus, you know. I'm not saying that we should try to orchestrate suffering. Paul certainly is giving us a testimony here of suffering that was physical. We don't know specifically what it was, but it was a physical kind of suffering from what it seems to be. And it wasn't something that he wanted. And yet God said about that kind of suffering too, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. In other words, as you are suffering, as your life shrinks down, as your capacities are limited, as you are held back, more room is actually created for the power of God to be at work. That is good news for us as believers. Now, I did say that I wanted to talk also about not just how we can think well about suffering, which I think we get from paul 's message uh, today in first and second Corinthians, but I do want to say a couple of things just before I end about what can we say to others, to one another and to others? A couple of additional things that we might want to say to clarify our relationship with suffering. We need to think clearly about suffering and Jesus' love. As we suffer, as we go through difficulties, we actually take a, a step closer to understanding the experience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, there are repeated allusions to the idea of people feeling privileged to suffer for Jesus. Paul talks about participating in the suffering of Jesus. This idea that as we suffer, we actually get closer to the experience of Jesus and we can understand his love for us more through our sufferings than we could if our lives were always simple and comfortable. I just want to quickly Of course, we think about the suffering of Jesus at the cross. We think about the the events surrounding the Garden of Gethsemane and the Last Supper and all of that. But I've been thinking more and more in recent years about the constant suffering of Jesus throughout his ministry. I'm convinced that Jesus suffered consistently and deeply all the way through his ministry. It wasn't like uh, Jesus' ministry went really, really well all the way along until all of a sudden Judas decided to betray him, and then for a few days things went very, very badly, and then he was resurrected. No, Jesus suffered from the very beginning. Think about the criticism that he endured constantly from Pharisees, people who were put forward in society as loving God the most and taking God the most seriously, constantly picking at him. About Sabbath healings, about forgiving sins when he wasn't supposed to, constantly under criticism. There wasn't a day of Jesus' ministry where the weight of criticism wasn't on him. He ministered constantly under a crowd, a cloud of criticism. He was ridiculed by the by the Sadducees. They didn't believe in bodily resurrection. So they came to him and asked, we have a question for you about a lady and her first husband died and then her second husband died and her third husband, you know. Which one is going to be your husband in the resurrection? All that just to mock him. Can you imagine? This is the one who is going to defeat death for all the world and they're making fun of the very concept of resurrection. He suffered that kind of ridicule. He was constantly excuse me, constantly harassed by questions where they were trying to trick him. You know, should we give our money to Caesar or should we give our money? What about the temple tax? How come you don't do that? What about, why don't your disciples fast? On and on and on. Those of us who are in ministry sometimes get criticized. You know, sometimes we might even get mocked. Sometimes we get pecked by all these little questions. Jesus dealt with that his entire ministry. All that time, he was misunderstood by his disciples. He talks to them about serving. They come to him and say, we've been having a conversation. Which one of us do you think is the greatest? Or at least he overhears them talking that way. They go through one town where they're not well well received, and a couple of them say, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to burn these people up? A couple of them come, brothers, right, with their mom. One of us wants to sit on your right hand. One of us wants to sit... On your left. These 12, just focusing on them, they never got it. They never understood what Jesus was talking about. If you read the Gospels, every single time that he speaks about the most important work that God has sent him to do, they resist him. They're discouraged by that. He is completely alone in understanding his ministry. Even the people who are excited about him are excited about him for all the wrong reasons. Peter even confronts him and says, this will never be, Lord. You're never going to suffer like that. Peter defies him. When Jesus is trying to warn him, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You're going to deny me. Peter says, no, I won't. This is right up to the end. After three years with Jesus, he can't even get through to one of the people who's been closest to him This entire time. And then, as we all know, he's betrayed. He's abandoned. Mark's gospel tells us that one of the guys actually runs right out of his clothes. He so desires to get away from Jesus when Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves his clothes behind. That's the kind of loyalty Jesus had from his followers at the end. Not to mention that Peter then goes and denies him three times, and we're told that Jesus had eye contact with Peter. He was that close, listening. As he's being confronted by the people who want to murder him, he can hear the one that he's invested in for three years selling him out in the courtyard. Jesus suffered constantly. And as we suffer, as we go through difficulties in our relationships, as we go through physical difficulties, as we go through discouragements, we actually get a better picture of Jesus' suffering. And listen, the suffering of Jesus measures the depth of God's love for us. As we see Jesus' suffering, we can say, this is how much God loves us. And it didn't just happen one morning on a cross. As much as that suffering is essential, it was constant through Jesus' life that he was willing to suffer because of his great love for us. So as people are suffering around us, as people come to us and say, How can you believe in a God who allows suffering in the world? Part of the message has to be: it's not that God stands off, separate from the from the suffering of this world. In Christ, God also has suffered and suffered incalculably more than any of us could even imagine. Can you even just it's it's crazy to think about? How good Jesus knew things could be. And yet he was misunderstood, criticized, you know, constantly. He suffered so greatly. And so as we suffer and we understand the suffering of Jesus, we understand the depth of God's love and we come to a place of security. We come to a place where we're certain of God's love because we can better see how Jesus suffered for us. Tim Keller has a a good quote. Suffering will make us worse if it takes away the one source of joy we had built on, but suffering will make us better if it causes us to rely on the one source of joy that is not subject to circumstances. Jesus' suffering does not remove the possibility of suffering from our lives, but his suffering does mean that in our suffering we can become like him, the one source of joy that is not subject to circumstances. What is that? It's the proven love of God. Nothing can shake that. Nothing can take that away. And suffering has a way of forcing us to cling more tightly to the one thing that's ultimately true, that God loves us, that he has demonstrated his love for us in Christ, that we are secure forever as his children, that nothing can separate us from his love. And then lastly, suffering magnifies the victory of Jesus it, it should say suffering and Jesus' victory. I'll have to fix that for uh, the next time I ever share this message. So here's the good news. This all ends perfectly well. No matter what you are going through, no matter what is never resolved in your life, the illness that is never cured, the relationship that is never restored, the mental health issue that plagues you your entire life, the limitations of your personality, the things you wish were different, whatever whatever way in which you are suffering or may suffer in the future, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can be confident this story ends perfectly well. All things are made right in Christ. Jesus is the one who in Revelation can say, behold, I am making all things new. And with the hope that Jesus has defeated sin and death and all the strategies of the enemy. We can suffer with hope, shining a bright light in the darkness of this world. And I'll tell you, Leamington needs a church that knows how to suffer well. Leamington needs a church where people are welcome to come with their hurts and difficulties and struggles, where they don't need to feel as like they need to clean everything up or pretend that everything is okay. Leamington needs a church of people who are well aware of the security that we have because of the love of God and who can go through difficult times with great hope and joy because we know that we belong to God and nothing can ever take us out of his grip. And Leamington needs a church that is full of resurrection hope that yes, the power of God will break in and set things right, right before our eyes, and we should have every hope and every expectation. We should be praying for healing. We should be praying for restoration. We should be praying for breakthrough in people's lives, but we ultimately need to say that while the kingdom of God is breaking in, it's not yet fully here, and we're waiting for that time when King Jesus will be exalted, and we've sung about it already. Every Knee will bow, every tongue will confess on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so our stories end perfectly well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we often want to just have comfortable lives, and that we're often not well prepared to suffer. Lord, we see the suffering, though, that uh, never seems to go away. No matter where we fix up the world in one direction, suffering crops up in a new form. And so, Lord, we know that uh, suffering will be part of our lives and that actually you allow suffering in our lives so that your power can shine through more powerfully. Lord, make us people who love you more than comfort. Make us people who cling to you, not because you're going to set everything right, but because you alone, as our God, are worth it and sufficient and powerful. Flood our lives, Holy Spirit, with your power. We pray for miracles. We pray for breakthrough. We pray that we would see things set right before our eyes, but we pray more for a relationship with you that will shine brightly in the darkest moments. And Lord, we pray that you would draw people all across this world to see Jesus risen, exalted, and victorious and to place our hope in him so that Jesus, you'll be the one who's glorified. You'll be the one who's exalted. We pray all of this in your name, Lord. Amen.